what were the anxieties around modern women travelers in 19th century Bengal? And what do instances of enforcement of morality tell us about society's discomfort around women in public spaces? Hi, I'm Aditi, and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society, and culture. In this episode, we're taking you back to a conversation from September 2021, when we spoke to cultural studies scholar Dr. Swati Moitra. We'd like to kick us off with your work on 19th century Bengal. So, what were the anxieties around modern, modern in quotes, modern women travelers in 19th century Bengal? And how did these anxieties make their way into popular writings and art at the time? Right, right. So, now let's be very clear that it's not as though women hadn't traveled before that or that, you know, pre-colonial and uh, early modern Bengal did not have women travelers. And this, this is true for India at large, that both voluntary as well as involuntary travelers were very much a part of the landscape. So, for instance, if we speak specifically of Hindu upper caste women, uh, despite the certain uh, restrictions on their on, on travel for them, they would still be traveling to their parents' homes, for instance. So there is this whole tradition of writing uh, songs, women's songs, during the Durga Puja season, where the woman sort of identifies with the figure of Durga coming to her natal home. There is that entire tradition. Women would go to pilgrimages, right? So this this is not necessarily fully conscribed in that sense. Even Muslim women, again, uh, at least the elite Muslim women who would be a part of the Zenanas, would still have access to some forms of travel, though perhaps not very extensive Women in agricultural communities, women in performing multiple labor forms, they have always traveled. Vaishnav women have always traveled. Mendicants traveling from one place to another. That, that's there. That's, that's part and parcel of early modern Bengal. Um, there's involuntary travel. For instance, say the whole specter of piracy. Portuguese piracy in the 16th, 17th centuries, 18, even in the 18th century, in fact, in Lower Bengal. So that has a lot of women simply being taken away and they travel, say, some travel to Goa, some travel to Arakan, some travel to Batavia, to Colombo, to South Africa. And again, there's this form of travel there as well, which is again not a form of travel they choose, but that happens nonetheless. But what's happening in the 19th century that's of specific interest to us? And that's this that in the 19th century, two things are happening. First and foremost, we do have the arrival of the Mim Sahibs. So there aren't too many white women in comparison to white men. By the mid-18th century, once the English East India Company establishes itself in Bengal, you have more and more men coming over. And women are always outnumbered here. And there's a lot of complaint, in fact, that, you know, they can't date, etc., so these guys want to go back home, their homesick. This happens. But more and more women do begin to arrive. You have missionary women. You have women looking for a job. So yes, this happens especially in the 19th century. Women looking for some hope of, of some sort of a, uh, occupation here, teaching English. And of course, you have the wives 
of the wives and the family members of the officers and the soldiers placed here. So women do begin to arrive and some of them especially take to traveling. So you have somebody like Emma Roberts, Fanny Parks, they come and write about it as well, which the, the very uh, fun narratives, even the lesser known uh, women, for instance, if you look at the archives, I've often run into uh, travel narratives or simply memoirs written by women who are not necessarily, who've not necessarily made a name for themselves, but they're, they're wives of uh, some official in the East India Company or the other. So they do travel around with their husband with considerably less restrictions and they write about it. So this this happening. The second thing that's happening, especially as the 19th century progresses, is that we now have more men, Indian Hindu men, traveling as they increasingly, the, the taboo on travel is begins to be questioned by these men. Raja Ramohan Rai, for instance, travels to England at that point of time. So there is a certain, there are certain changes happening in the uh, upper caste Hindu society. And remember, we're still talking about this section of the society. Uh, working class women, Dalit women, they've always traveled. It's never been an issue there, right? And the last thing that's happening is, of course, the coming of the railways. The railways were established because the British needed it. But with the uh, transport of soldiers and freight, increasingly passenger travel, also becomes a thing. And at this point of time, this is what we see in the uh, caricatures of Tagore, who always had this very sharp eye for every social folly. So Tagore, Tagore for instance, in one of the railway paintings, which I absolutely love, is the one where you have two women walking on the railway platform and you have a bunch of men. You just have these eyes sort of looking at them and pouring over them. And that's something that should be familiar to any woman traveler in India, even today, because I think the fact that you get stared at a lot and that these eyes are lecherous eyes, these are first class eyes, these are second class eyes, these are third class eyes, all the three different uh, bogies. You have two gentlemen representing Hindus and Muslims respectively. And the fun part is everybody is staring, right? And he asks the question, so respect for women? So there you, you have this ironic look at a of course the difficulties that women travelers faced and the second part is of course his uh, sort of searing criticism of men themselves who would treat women traveling as necessarily available women available to the public eye and so therefore why can't we look at them? That sort of a thing, right? The kind of impunity with, with those guys look, it's something that has stuck with me even today. In his other paintings, again, you have these families traveling and they do reflect, again, that increasing culture of uh, middle-class Bengali men traveling with their families, uh, children. But it's always you see that, so for instance, the wife is taking care of the child or she's carrying the baggage and the children are clinging to her while the babu is sort of walking around, uh, walking ahead, uncaring. And you can see that Tagore has a lot to say about domestic responsibilities. And he seems to be suggesting that even when women traveled, they did not necessarily escape the burdens of home, their homes traveled with them. Right. It's not simply that it's the home and the world, but, you know, the cares travel with you. Tagore, of course, is particularly delightful here because the 
general anxieties that we see at that point of time reflected say in the advice manuals or in the kind of interactions that indians have with the railways for instance because in the railways again the railways everybody they accept that okay this is fun right it's nice to be able to travel so fast but also the question arises then what happens to women what happens to them traveling and then being looked at by other men or interacting with women of different caste and class groups and what remains unspoken which which sort of gives rise to the ladies compartment but i think what remains unspoken which nobody will dare ask but i'm sure they're thinking is that what happens when women look what if they look at other men what if they look at the world and think okay maybe this is the way to be i think that anxiety is playing out throughout whether or not they accept it in the advice manuals of that time they're constantly talking about okay women should travel but not too much um there's this particularly fantastic bengali advice manual by this gentleman called again nobody of necessarily of repute uh, dr jodunath i loved that one because he has this entire section where he is uh, talking about the tantrums that women throw he is exaggerating it is a why do women insist on traveling why do you always have to go to melas we also have the phenomenon of indentured labor which is again happening through i mean if if the practice of slavery is abolished though we we see it happening well into the 19th century once that is abolished officially we have a number of indentured women going abroad right especially from bihar via bengal so in calcutta even today we have a, a river ghat called the surinam ghat because it's from there that the ships sailed off to the country of surinam and it's not just surinam it's the other caribbean islands it's mauritius it's fiji so we have all these forms of travel and movement happening on different registers on different levels and uh, there are social anxieties especially regarding the purity of hindu upper caste women and to a certain extent a similar parallel anxiety among the muslim elite as well but it's something that uh, it, it has a lot of uh, layers of happening there so it's very interesting to think about with regards to that so i hope i've answered your question here to an extent absolutely you have and you've helped us tie so much of it together there's a lot of socio economic changes happening and a lot of cultural changes because of colonialism and uh these anxieties we can see till today um moving on to the next question uh speaking of travel writings right um you've written a lot about the writings of kailash pashini devi um so how did the travel writings of kailash pashini devi enable her to claim a voice in public space and advocate for the restructuring of domestic life here's the thing now kailash pashini devi when i write about her she is among the many women writers of the period who i think deserve more attention and a lot of my colleagues and myself and historians elsewhere have looked at their writing have sought to re sort of rehabilitate their writing uh, bring more of it to the public eye a lot more has been translated now rashundari dashi for instance now uh, makes a form part of syllabi everywhere just as pandita ramabai and of course avitri bai phule uh, do now occupy uh, a greater part of our consciousness than ever before but 
Kolaj Vashini, unfortunately, is not one of them. And that's why I think her, the, the reason her story attracted me to it, that I could clearly see what she was hoping and aspiring to do, but it's something that doesn't really happen. Now, this is a Bhadra Mohila who is from, again, she is from a rich Kayast family. Her husband's family is one of the most influential, the Mitros of uh, Calcutta. Her husband is a civil servant. And okay, so later he loses his job when he fights with the government. True, but that's much later. They, they still have a lot of family wealth and influence. Her brother-in-law, Pyarichan Mitro, is one of the most important writers of that period, one of the earliest writers of Bengali prose fiction. Uh, her husband used to... Uh, take out a journal, which unfortunately we don't have any copies of. But that's where Bankim Chandra Chatterjee's uh, novel Rajmohan's Wife came out in the beginning. Right, so we are talking about people who are this established and this connected. She speaks about, you know, we went to seal the seals uh, Baganbadi or Garden House and we stayed there. I'm like, the seals? The seals, the Motilal seal family? Right, so these are the kind of people they hang out with. These are their friends. So, on one hand, we have somebody who is of this, this social standing among the Calcutta elite. And, and again, she does manage to live a rather extraordinary life. Can't see her husband, who was a reformist. They seem to have a very good relationship. So, he likes to travel with her, which is quite unusual at that point of time. It was common for Englishmen to travel with their wives. And again, if you think of the landscape of uh, Eastern Bengal, which is present-day Bangladesh. Lord Bengal is crisscrossed by rivers and river travel was the primary form of travel at that point of time. So he takes her along on these boat rides and he goes on, she goes on to these extensive tours of uh, rural Bengal in a way that most women of her time would not have had. And in many ways, she talks about, which is really, uh, she made me think of, you know, what the women would have been looking at in the railways. Because she frequently talks about just staring and looking. And you see this similar sentiment in a lot of other women. So Manuara Begum, for instance, when she writes, again, traveling on the steamer, she says, we were not allowed to go outside on the deck. But I could see from the windows outside, right? And we only looked so I think from there, a certain anxiety comes. Are they looking only at the scenery or also at other men? Right. I, I think that anxiety is never very far away from the minds of the so-called guardians of the society. But of course, there is a different pleasure to this kind of travel that you know, Kailash Vashini and her other contemporaries talk about. There are travel narratives that are as simple as going to, uh, uh, from Calcutta to Bandel, which is... Uh, uh, in Hooghly, across the Hooghly, to the Portuguese settlement. So to where my father-in-law resides, you have travel narratives like this, which is basically traveling uh, 40, 50 kilometers down the river. So you, you do have women's voices speaking of this at this point of time. And, and this is really where your question, again, Koilash Vashini, again, I, we come back to that. Um, Koilash Vashini is writing, and especially that it was later published as a diary much after her death. I don't think it's like it's a diary. It clearly addresses readers, right? It clearly talks to her intended readers. And you can see that she has literary ambitions. Perhaps she hoped to get it edited by her husband. 
you know because it was quite it was quite common place for that time to uh, get publishers to go to the printers and get it published and and then send copies to libraries and to friends right this was quite common in the elite households at that point of time they were very familiar with the workings of the press perhaps she had plans like that i don't know but you get the feeling that she's trying to sort of find a place for herself in public memory placing herself as this figure of an ideal wife who is a true uh, this is a marriage of true minds so to speak it's it's that kind of a marriage that she is hoping to convey which is why in fact one commentator in fact says that you know she's exaggerating why does she keep insisting that everything is so great about her life right and i i think I don't know if it's an exaggeration or not, but it's certainly a curated narrative. And the whole point that she's trying to make is that she's trying to place her as the the shahodhanmini, as the ideal wife alongside her husband, who is of course a man of repute. But does she make a dent in the public memory? She does not, because this is not something that's published. This is something that her her entire enterprise gets cut short with her husband's death, as she tells us at the very end. my life has come to an end he has died and i will write no more right it's almost as though that he was her muse in a very uh, curious gender reversal it was also that he was her muse and once he passes away she sees no reason to continue on the, in this project in the first place and i think this perhaps also this sense that what is the social location of widows at that point of time in bengal a large section of bengali widows even wealthy bengali widows would end up in banaras to live out the rest of their lives so what was she thinking what would be her social position she had a daughter uh, who was married by the time so where would she stand socially can a widow have a social position well as begum rokeya would show they can but this is probably not something that koilash bashini who seeks to uphold at least certain standards of caste in the society even though her husband doesn't believe in it i don't think this is something that koilash bashini can imagine and that's also one of the reasons why her project is cut short once the husband passes away right so no she doesn't to answer your question again simply she doesn't right if women like binodini dashi can't inscribe their names in the public memory the, the great actress binodini right if she fails to get uh, you know her her colleagues to name a building after her then well uh, it's this this uh, women's place in public in the public sphere is something that remains tenuous and dubious even for women as privileged as kolash washin absolutely you put it so interestingly that she tried but she tried within certain constraints and she wanted to remain that ideal figure of the bhadra mahila Uh, speaking of Padra Mohilas, that brings us to the next question. Could you take us through how did communitarian reading groups in colonial Bengal assert the importance of reading as a leisurely practice for Bengali women, and how did this shape the ideal of the Bengali Padra Mohila? Right. So to answer the second question first, it did not again because what it did was it placed certain. Uh, it 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 often came into contrast or. if not direct conflict with certain ideals of what a bhadra mohila is supposed to be and what they're supposed to do i'll come back to that again but to go back to this question now this practice of even today in india 
um, this is especially something I'd see a lot in Delhi, less so in Calcutta, but it's there. The practice of sitting around a newspaper or a, uh, and, and when one person reads it out and everybody else listens to it. This is not uncommon in India even today, right? The practice of reading aloud where a lot of people participate and I'm not even talking about book readings which of, of different sorts that we have today. Authors coming and reading their books, uh, bookstores holding such events. Uh, I'm not even going there, right? But this practice of reading aloud where while other people listen and some of them may not be very literate even today. Right. This is a very old practice. Now, and this is a practice that predates the coming of print to India. Right. The practice of gathering around a religious manuscript where one person reads it out loud and others listen to it is an important religious slash leisure practice. In, in Bengal, it's a very significant practice. For instance, you have figures called the Kothok. His entire work is to either speak from memory a lot of them do speak from memory, or, or to read a manuscript. Often, and it's not simply that, you know, reading in a very boring way, you'll be reading out to a huge audience, which is here to listen to a story. So they would listen to it and they'd involve, you know, uh, musical elements, not dancing or singing necessarily, but a, a certain musical way of speaking, certain gestures, all of it is part and parcel of the leisure practices of people for a very long time. And women were, in fact, some of the most important listeners to these figures, just as they were one of the most important patrons to say the uh, Jatra. Jatra is a local form of performance in Bengal. So, because that was one opportunity for them to go, there would be separate places for women to sit, right? So, all of that was there before the coming of print, before the emergence of secular literature in print in that sense, though again secular narratives predate uh, print culture and the coming of colonialism in Bengal, there's always that, right? So this practice is not new. But what the print printed book does, and let me tell you a story here. So Dinesh Chandra Shen, he is of, he's a contemporary of Bhongkipsandra uh, Chatterjee and is also known for being a poet of some repute and also a civil servant. So he was from one of the furthest corners of Bengal, in this case, today's Bangladesh, uh, near at a place in the Chottogram district, uh, a village called Noapara. Now, it is the farthest corner of the physical geography of undivided Bengal, right? So he says that you know, he complains that 14 years later, I have come home in the month of monsoon. Earlier in the month of monsoon, readers, the Kothoks, would read from the manuscripts and women in every household would gather to listen to the songs of Monusha, the serpent goddess Monusha, who is still worshipped in these parts even today. Right. But now I'm seeing that the older Kothoks, the, the ones who were young when he left, they, they have now grown older, they're established, but they don't have a next generation. Why? Because women aren't listening to this anymore, you see. They are listening to novels. He complains that our culture has gone to ruin. Women's education has ruined this country. We have replaced Ram with, you know, the characters of Bhongkim Chandra Chatterjee's novels, blah, blah, blah. So he's complaining. But think about this. The books are so ubiquitous that they have made their way to the farthest corner of Bengal, which is almost 500 kilometers from Dhaka. You need 
steamers to go through and there are cyclones etc it takes 3 days but even when the books have reached there and and women are listening to it so this this is something the ubiquity of this practice is something that is probably part and parcel of a lot of households because this was already an established leisure practice so there is a lot of resistance towards say things like you know makeup they complain about women's makeups etc make women's makeup or even you know certain kinds of sarees are objected to but the book is not really objected to beyond a certain point even though initially there is other a lot of complaints about the printing of holy books there's that but apart from that they're not really objected to the ramayana and the mahabharata are the absolute best sellers of that time maybe one woman can read or a couple can read not most can but they gather around that the ramayana somebody reads it out from there and that becomes a form of leisure and as we can see it's not always the ramayana and the mahabharat it's also other things in fact we also hear things about so for instance uh, in the tagore household uh, rabindranath tagore's oldest sister shornakumari devi now she was born in 1855 she tells us that she's heard from her mother's generation that a vaishnavi who could read would come over and read out things in that household so we have we have evidence of these things happening so the, these uh, reading groups in colonial bengal we have very scanty evidence because again because the the practice of reading itself is so ephemeral right when we when i'm reading something or when you're reading something be it on your phone or be it a book you're reading it doesn't leave a trace behind we read and we are done with but when it comes to this kind of uh group reading if i may put it that way that i think it is it, it remains an important form of uh sociability for women where they can hang out over a book even if it is a religious book it, it may be the chaitanya bhagavat it may be the mahabharat it may be the ramayana it might also be a novel right so this is a practice i think that we have from what we gather that persists in Uh, colonial bengal at that point of time and it is an important form of sociability to a point where we have in advice manuals for instance people sort of take it for granted that it's not going away so they have a lot of advice as to what kind of things you can read out for your daughters that girls shouldn't be listening to novels from their mothers or their grandmothers let them grow up and read them themselves if they have to but this kind of advice is being given uh there is a a kind of for instance other people are even the advice manuals themselves are written in this very hitopadesha like oral dialogic structure which seems to suggest that they are also meant to be read out right because remember that not everybody is literate most are not but that doesn't mean they don't have access to the books that's what this makes possible now to go back to the second part of the question again is that so how does this deal with the idea of the padra mohila see by the mid 19th century it sort of accepted that women will have to be bhadra women will have to be which is again hindu upper caste women will have to be educated right but there's a lot of anxiety over the kind of education that they should have so the whole idea now reading out loud is actually approved of because then you can hear what they are reading right what if they are reading something that shouldn't be read by women right so at least if they are reading out loud that's a better thing than sitting on your own in your room and not doing domestic work and god knows what she is reading that's even scarier 
right? But the objection here seems to be mostly that why are they not reading the right kind of things? Why read the novels when you have religious narratives? But I think most of these practices are also, it, it's really after a certain point not very strongly governed because it's happening within women's domestic spaces, right? A lot of men do not necessarily have entry to it. By the time we have evidence of mixed group reading much later, so you have, say, a, a son of the household or a brother in the household reads out. Uh, we have we, we see evidence of all sorts of books being read aloud and a very funny anecdotes about how women interrupt and say, OK, stop doing the hymn. Let's get to the most important part. Do they get together or not? So that sort of a thing. You also have readers interrupting. Other anecdotes of women readers saying, this book is written by somebody who doesn't understand how households work, etc. So you, you have that. That's so interesting that it was an important form of sociability, but it was still fraught with what it should be like and what it shouldn't be like. So you've written extensively about the history of print in India since colonial, uh, since the colonial period. So how has print culture been impacted by the changes in contemporary reading cultures? Right. Now, this is a complex question because contemporary reading cultures have transformed and shifted uh, in ways very different than from the uh, 19th century. And first and foremost is, of course, the question of uh, the arrival of digital reading devices, ubiquity of the internet, the increasing availability of you know, iPads and our smartphones themselves form a revolutionary practice. Now, we frequently hear of this conflict between print and digital, and it's often envisioned as a clash of titans, the same way that the print and manuscript cultures must have clashed at one point of time. But, you know, looking at it historically, also in, through our present day experience, the clashes, as they are often envisioned, don't necessarily happen in, a, in this deathmatch style battle. And there's no immediate winner or loser in that sense. But when a new technology arrives... Older technologies shift and transform and sometimes die out if they have to uh, in order to make way for newer technologies. Uh, so since the early 2000s, we have been hearing about the death of print. Now, that hasn't happened yet, right? Books, and especially apparently where booksellers keep saying that in the pandemic, physical books apparently have sold a lot. Um, so I think where... Contemporary cultures of reading have visibly made a difference, less so than the literary book or the popular book, which did, which did not necessarily have the kind of circulation it had to begin with, is the newspaper. The printed newspaper and the printed magazines, the periodicals, they are the ones who will tell you the impact of digital on print and how contemporary reading cultures have shifted and changed so the circulation of, say, something as major as, say, uh, in the Bengali context, something like the Anand Bajar Putrika, still the largest circulating, circulating daily, uh, it, 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 it has seen a drop in numbers, uh, despite being the largest, precisely because these cultures of newspaper reading has changed a lot. We have seen a lot of newspapers go completely out. Uh, others decline, say, something as old and venerable like the statesman. Others cater to all sorts of tabloid interests, investing a lot in digital. Reading practices don't always mean just reading a book. 
or even a newspaper. Even when I'm on Twitter reading tweets, I am reading something, right? And again, that the advent of social media in particular has also changed the way we read things. Our attention span is often smaller. So which is why we now increasingly even have digital publications trying to sort of, this is a two-minute read. This is a five-minute read. This is a long read. Now, have you ever heard of a long read or a long, long read or whatever, the long form? This, this is not something that necessarily required qualification. And again, I'm not speaking in terms of value judgments here because as a historian, I do have to see how things change and unfold. It's not, not always my place to say this is a good thing or that's a bad thing. No, I'm watching this unfold. And in this case, so as our attention spans have shifted, uh, I think the nature of reading has also changed because we often read in bursts, in spurts, and then we go away and shift away to another tab. So all of that, contemporary reading practices are constantly in flux, I would say. And that's something that we are going to see unfold. I don't think print printed books are necessarily going away. Though, again, the vernacular, uh, or rather the modern Indian languages apart from English, I think printing there would again have a very different story. Uh, Bengali print, for instance, I, I'm not suggesting it has gone away. No, it's, it hasn't. But it has gone through a lot of, it has experienced a lot of uh, difficulties, both courtesy piracy as well as the rise of digital reading, the declining circulations. Uh, the industry has had to deal with a lot of Cutting down on jobs, for instance, such as copy editing jobs, which is not a good news for the future of the publishing industry. You need copy editors. So the things like this has happened. I'm sure it has also happened, say, in Hindi print, which continues to have the largest circulation in the country even today. Um, and, and so I'm not necessarily a scholar of these forms of print, so don't take my word 100% on this. But I do think from my observation here that we are looking at a period of flux and who knows where, where it will stand in the next 10, 15 years. I, for one, still like to read my morning newspaper uh, in a physical shape. But I know that this is something that is very much in decline. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the picture that we see overall. Definitely. that We know that it's in a flux, but where the flux will settle is yet to be seen. Uh, so now you'd recently written a piece about the outrage that ensued after a young couple was seen embracing in public in the Calcutta metro. What do such incidents about the enforcement of morality in public spaces, what do they tell us about the discomfort of women being in public? Did you see that uh, thing that went viral on social media a couple of weeks ago, where I think it's a park in Hyderabad? which had uh, got this notification saying that, you know, unmarried couples are not allowed here, right? Because the whole idea was that they'd make out in public and imagine Toba Toba doing all these kind of things or, you know, the the very literal harassment of uh, couples in walking while on a bus, um, you know, just holding hands, so on and so forth. So this whole thing about our society being PR Kadushman and especially a man and a woman uh, displaying forms of heterosexual affection 
in the public sphere is frowned upon and calcutta for all that its claims to liberal glory is no exception it's quite common for the police to have hold raids at the victoria memorial or at the uh, rabindranathwar lake to capture amorous couples and then sort of give them cases this is not uncommon at all right no the couples always find their way back to these places but uh, this is this is not uncommon because the whole idea and a, a section of the society is very supportive of it uh, because it sees this as a violation of their ability to inhabit that public place because apparently those specters of kissing etc it, it belongs somewhere else somewhere private so we do have that and i think almost every indian city to an extent has and the smaller the city the more difficult it is i, I come from a small town myself and couple standing innocently in front of a park could also be shouted at by somebody next door sometimes it was my aunt so you know to answer your larger question uh, i think indian public spaces continue to be tremendously hostile towards women that uh for instance women of certain social class such as myself say i for instance am able to perhaps buy a half an hour's peace say at a cafe near me which is not necessarily a form of leisure available to everybody but say the simple freedom of inhabiting a park where you can lie down and go to sleep i know some groups have been experimenting with this but Well, simply lying down in a park, as, as so many men seem to be able to do, and just falling asleep because you're tired, or the simple freedom of uh, loitering around, not doing a lot, right? We, we, I'm sure you also have male friends who will rhapsodize about, you know, I just went on a walk at night, and I'm like, I went on a walk at night very well. I can't. So it's this, these things that sort of. curtail women's presence i mean the the outburst of the moral uncles in the metro is of course one of those flashpoints where you look at this and and think okay uh, women aren't really welcome and especially if you have in love toba toba but it's more than that right it's it's little everyday things it's the fact that there's no women's bathroom there so you have to basically like rush home and it's again it's disincentivizing women there there are no street lights or like in delhi large stretches where there's just darkness and nobody streets like that don't welcome women they are very much against norms of women's safety 20 cctvs you can put on but that that doesn't ensure women's safety right it's only the practice of habiting a place and owning it and being a natural part of it again we are looking at a society that's extremely hostile towards women and and their presence in public and i think while flashpoints like that like that metro incident sort of showed how ugly it can get but it's something that's very insidious and very small very everyday level like not having bathrooms as simple as that so yeah Um, it it it's, it doesn't say very good things about what we think of women who are out and about in public i think definitely it's still something we're grappling with and we see it every year say around valentines day around any events which will uh, evoke this anger we know what's coming um coming to work that you've done on fan fiction which is very interesting we'd love to learn about what fem/fiction is so could you tell us what it means 
and how it can be understood in the context of Indian popular culture. Can subcultures like Femslash contribute to queer visibility in India? Again, yes and no. But let me explain what it is first. Um, so, there are different kinds of fan cultures worldwide and in India as well. I mean, you have cricket fandom, you have Bollywood fandom, you have the guys on Twitter every single day trending something about Big Boss or, you know, the fan clubs of uh, uh, Telugu movie stars. You have Bangla soap fandoms. So, fan cultures have existed uh, here and again, they exist in different forms and shape in, in different places, different locations. Uh, so uh, the fan cultures of the sort that we were talking about are primarily uh, media fandoms. I mean, that's the kind of fandoms that we have primarily looked at. I have primarily looked at. These are uh, Western media fandoms, that is to say fan culture, fans of television shows, of movies, of books, say something like Harry Potter. And the fans, the fandoms that shaped online in response to these engaging, arguing, um, vigorously loving the text as well as hating the text and uh, doing new things with the text because uh, when it is unsatisfactory, as media so often is, you write a different ending. The characters you like don't get together, so you make them get together in your writing instead. This element of wish fulfillment is part and parcel of fandom and fan fiction, right? Which now has become a lot more mainstream than it was even 10 years ago in the Indian context in particular. I, I have to keep talking to younger people because of my job. And it's, it's a lot more common for younger people to talk about fan fiction, to have fan fiction contests in colleges, for instance, in a way that perhaps would not have been a thing uh, when we were students 15 years ago. A long time ago. <laughs> but anyway, so there I've seen this transformation. Now to come to slash fanfiction that primarily centers around queer male couples. Now again, this could be uh, cis male or it could be, there could be transgender men involved as well. But when we are talking about slash fanfiction, we are thinking primarily in terms of two male identifying people or maybe non-binary people uh, involved there and the relationship that one has with them. This has its origins in the early days of Star Trek with the uh, pairing, the very famous pairing between Kirk and Spock and uh, the relationship between them, K slash S as it was written and that's where the word slash came from. So fem slash very simply again is you add that prefix to the word slash and it becomes about women or rather people who are in some shape or form identifying as women. So uh, for instance, the early days of fem slash in the Western media context specifically would be say something like Zina, the warrior princess and her relationship with Gabrielle, which spouted an entire fandom of its own. And increasingly in the present day context where in the Western media, for instance, and again, I'm very deliberately mentioning the Western US-UK media context because it's not, there are different social contexts elsewhere. If this was, we were dealing with K-pop or if we were dealing with K-dramas or if we were dealing with C-dramas, uh, we would be talking about different contexts, right? So again, uh, with the increasing visibility of uh, queer relationships on television, so for 2014 onwards, you had television shows like Glee, you had, uh, you know, something like uh, Shira, where the lead herself 
is queer, relationship is at the center of the whole narrative. Uh, you have a lot of TV shows which now do emphatically have uh, characters who identify in various shades of the LGBT wave spectrum. So there's, there's all of this going on and the fandoms have grown and responded to it. They've become a lot more visible. They draw a lot of queer identifying people as well as uh, people who don't necessarily identify that way. So uh, that's that's really what fem slash fan fiction is. It, it writes basically about uh, two women identifying people and the relationship that might emerge from it. And I think these emerged, at, especially if you think of queer visibility now is very different, though of course it's not enough. But it came from a place where people wanted to see more of themselves in a certain uh, media form that they were looking at, or they simply wanted to explore the relationships in certain shapes and forms that television codes would not allow. So, for instance, the whole thing about queer coding, where you can't explicitly say that this character is gay, so you code them as gay, you're leaving some sub some messages along. And this was quite a thing in 90s television, right? Zina is queer coded, which is bizarre if you look at it now. It's so obvious. So that's where uh, these fem slash fandoms come from. And they're vibrant, diverse spaces. Same basis that fandoms are with all the flaws and the joys of uh, that fan spaces tend to have. Now, the question of whether or not this will contribute to queer visibility in India. Now, my understanding of queer visibility in India is again tied very explicitly to class and caste. There has, especially in the last few years, uh, actually this is after the initial Delhi High Court judgment, following the recriminalization and then the decriminalization again, we have seen uh, a certain forms of queer assertion. And it's wonderful to see younger people especially be able to at least in urban spaces to an extent, to be able to explore their gender and sexual identities more fully and not necessarily always in supportive environments, that's true. But we have to an extent made uh, a certain kind of impact there, uh, improvement there, if nothing else. Uh, we still do not necessarily see a lot of queer uh, media production in India, but that too is changing. But to come back to the question of whether or not be it slash fan fiction or fem slash fan fiction and its association with queer visibility. Now, first and foremost, fan cultures like this often hide in plain sight, right? Fan fiction is not meant to be, uh, I mean, sure, uh, they're, they're a lot more mainstream now, but even then they're not really meant to be, or as I understand it, uh, necessarily published in a newspaper, right? So it's, 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 not a question of visibility. Now, whether or not it can encourage and create a nurture queer spaces, yes, it can. But I do think, given the digital, uh, the divide, and the pandemic has made that very clear, half my students from working class backgrounds or from remote geographic areas don't have access to the basics of a good internet connection. So, so what sort of queer visibility are we talking about? Do we will we see queer visibility in urban spaces? Yes, we already see that. 
because uh, primarily it's been something that has been, even the movement against T77 has been primarily driven by urban queers and often urban cis gay males, right? Even the even lesbian or bisexual female presence is smaller in comparison, right? Trans people of various, again, be it, uh, third gender or non-binary or other forms of trans identities don't necessarily have a place in the table at all, right? So under these circumstances, uh, can something as niche uh, as, as, as fan fiction of this sort that I was talking about, which primarily still requires a access to a device, access to certain media forms, access to, it's usually the English language, though other language fan fiction also exists. It can certainly be a refuge for a lot of queer young people and not so young people for that matter. And that's, that's a wonderful thing for people to have that. But with regards to larger visibility, no, no, because these questions are tied to questions of caste and class, right? And there are, there are further, much broader struggles involved there. Definitely. Thank you for taking us through that and t- telling us about what fem slash cultures actually mean. It was so interesting to hear the history of the term and where that came from. And this has brought us to the end of our interview today. Thank you so much for being here with us, Dr. Moitra. We've gone all the way from Bhadra Mahilas in 19th century Bengal to queer cultures in India today. And it was really an interesting conversation. Thank you. That's the note we ended our conversation with Dr. Swati on. This episode gave us interesting insight into women travelers, their presence in public spaces, and the evolution of print culture. We hope it did the same for you. We release a new episode of the In Perspective podcast every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films. 